Welcome. Thanks for joining us for another sermon from the True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues to lead us through the Old Testament. During this sermon, we learn the storyline of how Israel transitioned into a monarchy, beginning with Saul and continuing with David, Solomon, and others. You can join us by turning your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Glory and Decline. section of scripture again today um, as we are still in this uh, Old Testament overview looking at the storyline and the theology of the Old Testament. If you're a visitor with us this is a bit odd for us to try to cover six books in one day. Um, we will be reading um, about one chapter as we get going uh, this morning to, uh, to help us uh, get started but we are covering the history of the storyline of the Old Testament looking at the main theology that God has laid. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, give you just a moment to turn there. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 1. Let's read the first 17 verses and then I need to pray and for ask for God's help. So verse 1. That came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him and with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Please bow with me and let's ask for our God's grace. Oh, Father, I'm a sinner and these unclean lips Lord, shouldn't get to preach, shouldn't get to even speak your name. 
But God, this is what you've designed. We are a group of sinners all joined here together. Lord, we have sinned even this morning. God, there is lust that lives in our hearts. Father, we are unclean and wicked before you, but you are merciful. And through the blood and resurrection of your Son, you have called us and welcomed us to yourself. And those who have trusted in Christ, you have made us your sons and daughters in unfathomable kindness. You have given us eternal life. You have set us in high and beautiful places, given us a hope and a future. And Lord, we love you and adore you. We love you and adore you for who you are. But God, what you have done is is so great, we cannot get our minds around it. And so God, we've come and draw near to worship you, to thank you. But God, we want to express our gratitude and love to you in that we want to keep growing. We want to keep being made holy. We want to exalt your name. We want to know you. We want the name of Jesus to be preached and loved to the ends of the earth. And God, we want to be people that you use to do this. And so God, we beg, come and do a work in us. Humble us, convict us, challenge us. God, we also pray, encourage us and comfort us. Father, every soul that is here this morning, we are all in different places in what we need. Let's ask God that you who knows the hearts, that whatever every soul needs, that God, you come and minister through your word in the miraculous ways you do. Please send your spirit and apply the truth, O God, to us. Change us today. Father, we ask you, bless this time. Give us hearts that are ready to hear humble Oh God, accomplish eternal good things, oh God, in this time. Have mercy. Pray this through the name of Christ. Amen. Let me take a second, um, kind of at the beginning here, and talk about where we are in this overview. Um, so we're sort of where we are in, in the timeline, the storyline of Old Testament history. W one of the things that I have hoped this study would do is help you understand how the Bible fits together. So we have really spent a lot of time focusing on the storyline of the history of the earth. What is God doing in this world? He doesn't really care about your kids' ball games, okay? God's storyline work in this world is the work of redemption. The work of how God created a kingdom. We left that kingdom to go serve another king. God has made a way to bring us back into his kingdom and King Jesus is going to rule once again. The storyline of scripture, the storyline of history is God bringing this about. But I've also hoped that we would kind of understand more just the Bible that sits in your lap. Understand sort of like when you open it up and you come to a section, kind of know what is there. It can be kind of confusing because uh, your Bibles, when you open them up, they're not in chronological order. Um, you can buy a Bible that's in chronological order, if that would be a help to you. Some people like that kind of thing. But the, the standard arrangement of the books of the Bible, when you open the table of contents, doesn't go in sequence. It's in order according to genres. Um, when you open up the New Testament, that very first section that you look at there, starting with the book of Genesis... Um, that's what we call the history section. That's where we are right now, working through the history section. So Genesis through the book of Esther, all the books that sort of explain. You might even find it helpful if you're new to studying the Bible. 
open the table of contents, maybe put a little line in there that just sort of tells you where, where you are. When you finish the book of Esther and you come to the book of Job, you enter the, the wisdom and poetry section of the Bible. So you've got Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. They sort of fit in at different places in the timeline of the history. That's the wisdom and poetry. Whenever you end the book of Song of Solomon, you come to the book of Isaiah, you enter the prophets section. This can also be a little bit confusing because when you're reading through those books, each of those prophets was... Uh, hearing from God and preaching at a different point in Israelite history. They fit in, however, in this era that we're going to be looking at today, the era of the kings. We are, we're going to be looking at some of those prophets, Lord willing, next Sunday. I'm going to try to sort of show you where some of them fit in in the timeline when we look at the fall of the two kingdoms. But today we're going to try to cover the history that stretches from around 1100 BC. Um, the prophet Samuel was born in 1105 BC, stretching through. Today, we're going to try to make it to about 750 BC. Not too bad, about 350 years of, of biblical history. But where this brings us from in the Bible is the end of the book of Judges, which we looked at last Sunday, all the way up until the point that the northern kingdom of Israel fell. And when I say that, even if you don't know what I mean by the Northern Kingdom, that's okay. Today you're going to learn. We're going to look through this section of history, the, the era of the kings. Um, let's talk just a little bit about these books. So you kind of get a little bit of understanding before we get into the specific history. The books of First uh, and Second Samuel um, were, were originally just one book. Um, they were divided simply because of uh, uh, practical convenience and carrying scrolls. Because remember, the Bible was written at a time before the technology of books existed. Everything was a scroll. That's a blessing. Y'all didn't have to like carry wagon loads of scrolls in here. And I didn't tell you like to turn in your scroll to a certain place. To God put the, the books together. And so even the order that they're in, that's not inspired. We, we put those together and arrange those in some things. But first and second Samuel was originally just one book and it tells us the history from Samuel, the last of the judges into the era of the Kings. We walk through the storyline of Saul, but really Saul's storyline is just getting us to David and the rest of first Samuel and second Samuel is all about the life of David, David, where first Kings picks up just continues right on in the storyline. First Kings and Second Kings, also originally just one book, finishes out and brings you to the point where the Northern Kingdom falls. When you come to First and Second Chronicles, also used to be one book, that, those two books, what they do, they cover the same section of history, but they do it in an abbreviated version. It's also kind of cool that they come from a different perspective. They highlight different details. Um, it's actually really kind of exciting. We believe that Chronicles was written by a priest because every event is always showing how this affected the worship of Yahweh. What did this do to the spiritual climate of the worship of the Lord? So in our study this week and then Lord willing into next week, we'll be in all of these six books looking through the storyline here. So what do we find? What do we find when we read through these books? You know, in the book of Judges, we saw a season of history where there was no king. 
We followed the storyline of the judges, their lives, their ministry. When we come to 1 Samuel, we see Israel given a king. And the storyline through all here is following what happens in this people. This people that God has formed and called to himself, given them his law, entered into covenant with, and he has now brought them into a land, established a kingdom among them. We follow the storyline of that kingdom. Let me tell you kind of three things to look for as, as we walk through these. So when you're reading and then through today, we'll kind of be going through all three of these things. First one is, this whole section is filled with moral lessons. Um, you get to spend time with heroes of the faith. We're shown lives through, through biography. There is something powerful about reading about great men and women of faith. And there's something that rubs off whenever we get to spend time with them. When you read about David's mighty men, it makes you want to be like them. There's something about this that is inspiring. At the same time, we see that God is painfully honest about the weaknesses and failures of our heroes. And God shows us the perspective of heaven, so we see this. And then also, this section has a whole lot of villains. In fact, at times it'll seem like there are more villains than heroes. It's a whole lot more fun to um, be inspired by great heroes. But I do want to tell you, God gives you the lives of the wicked because there's some lessons he wants us to see. Sometimes we don't see beauty until it's against the backdrop of what is ugly. And God shows us the lives of wicked men and he shows us the perspective of heaven. So the section has a lot of moral lessons, but it is a mistake to approach the Bible solely or even primarily for moral lessons. That's not the primary agenda of the Bible. A lot of times that's what people think the Bible is. It's just a book of morals. That's not the primary agenda of the Bible. The primary thing that we are doing, that God is doing in the scriptures is showing us his work of redemption. And so as we have walked through this, this Old Testament history, we have been seeing the whole time along, God has promised a redemption. Genesis 3, God has promised a way that he's going to fix everything that has been broken. But how will it be done? He promised the coming of a one. This one who would destroy the works of the devil and bring redemption. So, so what's this going to look like? We have been following God, bringing this about in his spectacular and uncanny kinds of ways that he works in this world. This storyline through the kings brings us closer to the day that the one who brings redemption will come. Then number three, the greatest, God is showing you himself. God is showing you who he is. And if I could break this part into two categories. The first part is God shows us his character. Shows us what he is like. How does God interact with his people? How does God interact with his enemies? We see God's covenant faithfulness. We see his mercy. We see his justice constantly learning who he is, but then the greatest, the most glorious of aspects that God has ever revealed about who he is, is in the work of his son. This section preaches Christ. Just like we saw Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and we've skipped the book of uh, Ruth, unfortunately, but he's there in the book of Ruth as well. The same way that all of those sections preach Christ in these types and foreshadows, Christ is preached in this section as well. 
whenever you see David, the young shepherd boy, go to battle against the giant in a match that seems like certain death, but he overcomes him in unlikely ways and he frees his people. You're given a picture of another shepherd, a greater shepherd, who would single-handedly go to battle against our greatest of foes and in an unlikely kind of way, the cross, he would accomplish our redemption. Christ is preached in numerous ways throughout this section of scripture. I think maybe the greatest, however, is the groaning that we are left with. As we see one weak, sinful king after another, our hearts are left yearning. We need a righteous king. We need one who will lead us into true relationship with God. And so we follow the storyline through this section. God is unfolding his plan of redemption. If you like uh, organization and you want kind of an outline to follow in your notes for today, here are four sections we'll kind of look at. Samuel, Saul, excuse me, I messed that up. Samuel, David, Solomon, and then everybody else. And that's kind of the way that the book is laid out. Those sections right there, everything is getting, but the section in David is sort of the place that everything else hinges around there. So let's get started by, by walking through the history that we see there. The book of First Samuel, if you want to kind of flip and follow along in some of the chapters, you might look at some of the subheadings and see stories we won't have time to talk about today. But 1 Samuel opens up with us learning about a woman named Hannah who was unable to bear children. She prayed to the Lord and God answered her prayer by giving her a young boy. By the way, that whole account has types and foreshadows pointing us forward to the birth of Christ as well. God gives her this young boy named Samuel, which in Hebrew means Elohim hears. Samuel grows up, becomes a prophet, as we mentioned, the last of the judges, and God uses him as the nation's primary leader for a long season of their history. Now, friends, you remember that the era of the judges was a dark time. It was a time of, of spiritual decline and, and wickedness. But in the midst of that darkness, God raised up a spiritual giant. Friends, you know, circumstances do generally produce a certain kind of people. But never forget that our God is sovereign and he has the power to mold and shape lives like a potter working clay. In the backdrop of great wickedness and twisted darkness, God raises up this shining light in Samuel and God uses him in some amazing ways. But towards the end of Samuel's life, Samuel, Samuel's sons actually ended up being really wicked men. The people see Samuel's sons, they see he's getting old and they see if Samuel's sons take over, this is not really what, they, what we want. They're not trusting the Lord. And so they come to Samuel and they ask for a king. Now that may not seem like a big deal to us. There's kind of a whole study here on, on, on why this is viewed the way that it is. I'll kind of, kind of have to give you the quick version today. Flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 8 for a moment, if you will. And we'll see a little bit of explanation about what's going on as they ask for a king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, find verse 6. 
The people asked Samuel for, Samuel for a king. Verse 6. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. Israel wasn't supposed to be like every other nation. They were the only nation in covenant with the one true and living God. He was their king. Yeah, that's different. It was supposed to be. It was supposed to be abnormal that the one true and living God was their king. And so when they ask for a king, what, what we are shown here in the heart, there is a rejection of God. Essentially what they're saying in their minds is, we don't want this situation anymore where we've got an invisible king. Give us somebody to look at. They looked around at all the nations around them. They saw their kings marched out to battle. They saw their kings wore crowns and great pomp and glory and accolades. And there's all of this excitement surrounding. And they say, we want that. We want to look cool like those guys. What the next three to four and more centuries will be is Israel feeling the miserable consequences of setting a sinner on the throne ruling over them. They had the righteous one and they said, no, give us a sinner. The next five more centuries will be feeling the consequences of what it is when a sinner is in rule. They are going to see dozens of crooks, despots, and incompetent buffoons drag their nation down the toilet bowl and away from God. Friends, a righteous king is a blessing to the people. A wicked king is a great curse. The people ask for a king and God will give it. In the storyline of redemption, we are seeing once again mankind rejecting God. God made a kingdom. Another king came in and humanity went and served the other king. God has been at work to form a new people. Come in covenant with this people. Make them into a kingdom. A king ruling over people, God's place in God's rule, enjoying God's blessing, all of these things. God has established this in a partial way. It's still not the greatest. And what happens? The people once again reject the rule of God. We are left once again seeing this is the imperfect version. If God is promising a great and glorious kingdom, it is going to have to be greater than this. They ask for a king, God will give it. Friends, it's a reality of this world. God will most of the time let you have what your heart most longs for. We live in a world where what you crave more than anything, a lot of times you can get it. You want money more than anything? You can get it. 
The people ask for a king and they get it. But we're going to see there are consequences to what they lust for. You know, there's the old saying, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. Actually, it's pretty biblical. We find very often that what we want leads to our misery, leads to the breaking down of everything in our lives. Our sin lies about the happiness and the pleasure that it promises. God gives them a king. God begins by giving the people the kind of king that they want. You may remember from uh, back in 2016, we did a fairly extensive study on the life of David. So I'm, I'm going to go kind of quickly through this section here. And just uh, uh, if you would like to look into some of those more, if you weren't here at that time, those sermons are on our website. It's a very fruitful, very helpful thing, um, walking through the life of David here. But we see that God gives them a man named Saul as their first king. Saul is everything that we in our flesh generally want in a king. He was tall and handsome. He followed his heart. He was a self-made kind of humanistic guy, built monuments to himself. And he had just enough religion to where he looked respectful. You know how not, not enough religion, it made everybody uncomfortable? He had just enough. He served the Lord, but in name only. Saul obeyed the commands of God so far as he wanted to obey them. Just like we saw with Israel concerning the foreign nations. They obeyed enough to feel good about themselves. They obeyed enough to say we obeyed the Lord, but really the hard parts they left out. Saul's obedience is like a lot of, a lot of those who call themselves Christians. Obey a certain list that they decide on, but then ignore the hard parts. And Samuel addresses Saul. Samuel the prophet comes and speaks to Saul. If you want to jump to chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. And says, beginning in verse 22. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, this is after a time that Saul did just what we described. Obeyed some of God's instructions, but not the full law. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. God gave a season where he gave the people the kind of king that they wanted, but now... God will raise up the kind of man that he delights in. That man would be the young shepherd boy, David. Now, David's story really is the highlight of all of these books, of all of these sections. In fact, hundreds of years after David's death, as we're going to read today, uh, some of the kings that come later, we're actually going to see that they're still being compared to David. Uh, the, the, the covenant that God made with David and the example of David is just constantly talked about. Friends, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, the example of David is talked about to the very last chapter of the Bible. This becomes a highlighted section that is here. Um, in chapter 16 of, of 1 Samuel, David finds out he's going to be king from Samuel and he gets anointed. In chapter 17, David fights against Goliath, that famous story, and he delivers Israel from the Philistines. Saul begins to see the writing on the wall that God has told him, I'm removing you and raising somebody else. And Saul sees David. He's like, I think this is going to be the guy. 
And so Saul spends the rest of his life, the rest of 1 Samuel, trying to fight the will of God. That's always smart. It happens every day. Trying to fight the will of God and kill David so that he can secure his own dynasty. But every time that Saul tries to destroy David, God orchestrates events in such a way that David ends up just flourishing. Saul would send David into an impossible situation. He's like, surely he'll be killed in this battle. And David slays 10,000 men and comes out victoriously, walks the streets and everybody cheers his name. Every time Saul tried to bash David, David flourishes. You will not, you will not thwart the will of God. At the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies in battle. As you come into 2 Samuel, David is then made king. David's kingship and then into his son Solomon's are the glory days of the earthly nation of Israel. Under David's rule, the nation prospers. It flourishes. They conquer their enemies. The horrid culture that we saw in the book of Judges is cleaned up under David. David brings law and order. The command that God gave Israel to go and, and take the land and drive out the nations, David does more than anyone has since the days of Joshua. They flourish as a people. God does bless even in things like financially. Uh, financially, they prosper most importantly. And we're not just saying this because we're a church and this is what you're supposed to say. This is what scripture reveals. The greatest way that they prosper, they flourish spiritually. David leads the people to know and love and serve the Lord. Listen, David as a leader can't make people love God but he devotes almost his entire life trying. And that's usually a recipe for fruit. He devotes his life to leading people to know and serve the Lord and they prosper and flourish in their covenant relationship with their God. A godly man is leading. A man after God's own heart sits on the throne and things are awesome the darkness of the book of Judges gives way to this beautiful era of light for a while. It is one of the points, friends, to see in this. Mere humans cannot sustain harmony and beauty for a long period of time. David is merely human. David sins in the devastating way that you may have learned about in his adultery with Bathsheba and then him arranging the death of Bathsheba's husband. If, if that's new to you, if you're new to studying the Bible and you don't know that story, 2 Samuel chapter 11 would be good devotional reading for you. You might also want a cup of coffee and a conversation to talk about some of what is there and goes on. How is he called this godly man if he did this? The Lord is merciful. And the Lord does not give David the wrath that he deserves. Instead, when God sets his love, God works to bring repentance. We see David wholeheartedly repent. Psalm 51, you can read. But God, God gave Israel a godly king. 
He, he fell in his sin. By the way, the rest of 2 Samuel, we will see David navigating through the consequences of his sin. The effects of what he's done will stay with him for the rest of his life as he navigates life through these things. But friends, we're shown. God gave Israel a godly king, but he was merely human. And even this man, who is amongst the the highest of specimens of holiness that we are capable of producing, even he brings devastation. We are left groaning. We are left saying what we said about Moses. If he can't make it in, if Moses couldn't bring the people to the full redemption, then who can? If David can't be the kind of king we need, then who can? We're given some of that answer in 2 Samuel 7, the passage we read at the beginning. God makes another covenant. We've been watching this, the story of God's covenants. God makes a covenant with David. And just as with the other covenants that we have seen God makes, it becomes a massive point, a pivotal point for the rest of history. So this covenant that God makes with David is something that the rest of the scriptures will talk about. We saw with the covenant with Adam, rest of the Bible talks about it. The covenant with Noah, it's in the rest of the Bible. Covenant with Abraham, rest of the Bible. Covenant with Moses, we're still talking about it. The covenant with David gets talked about. Friends, Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, as after Jesus has just given this beautiful, some of the greatest passages in the whole Bible, God is showing this image of the new heavens and the new earth to come. And Jesus says to his bride, I am coming quickly. He qualifies that with, I am the root and descendant of David. This covenant matters till the end of time. It's kind of hard to get more significant than that. The promise is that a seed of David will come to the throne and will reign forevermore. The rest of these books keep talking about that. When you come into the prophets, there is just constant looking at this covenant with David and God takes them further and explains more. There would be partial fulfillment in the fact that David's next son would come to the throne and would be a special kind of individual. But like with most or many prophecies of the Bible, there is multiple fulfillment and it points to a greater day when... The one called the son of David, the Messiah would come and sit on the throne over Israel. The prophets would later explain that the coming one would have the governments of the world on his shoulders. He would be called eternal God and he would reign forever. Friends, that's the significance of when you read in the New Testament and you come to those genealogies, one of the things we've seen of this whole series, genealogies matter, okay? Don't skip them, okay? You come to the New Testament, you got these genealogies, what are they always doing? They are showing Jesus's earthly family linking back to David. That is why he is called the son of David. When we say that, we are declaring, you are the one the earth has been waiting for. Second Samuel finishes out by showing many of the consequences of David's sin. And when we come into 1 Kings, We see the last days of David on this earth. Some of his sons are fighting over the throne. The Lord reveals to David that Solomon is to be the one that then becomes king. Solomon was a very unlikely choice, by the way. Solomon was not the oldest son. There were half a dozen older than him. And not only that, do you know who Solomon's mother was? 
Bathsheba, the very one that David committed adultery with. He ended up marrying her. She is the one that led to David's sin. Humanly speaking, this isn't the one that I would pick to be the one who would come sit on the throne. We see our God show some things. If that makes you uncomfortable, you're, you're seeing a point. God is declaring, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. The Lord works in unlikely ways. And we see the beauty of his design over and over again by God using unlikely methods. Solomon comes to the throne and Solomon spends most of his life wisely and faithfully leading the nation. They continue to flourish. In fact, they flourish so much. They reach the top of the prestige and beauty of culture in the world around them. We actually see foreign nations come to visit Solomon just to learn how he does what he does. They had such a flourishing culture that was there. But one of the big highlights of Solomon's life and contribution was the building of the temple. This temple was no small project. We saw back in Exodus, God instruct them to uh, construct the, um, uh, the tabernacle. Remember this? The temple is the tabernacle made into a permanent structure. So the place of worship just becomes permanent there. Solomon's temple was the kind of thing that the ends of the earth would travel to go see. Just like people may travel to, to China to go see the Great Wall, Solomon's temple is described in history as breathtaking. Solomon organized the nation, tens of thousands of workers at a time, laboring on this project for seven years, and they bring this about. Still to this day, if you were to travel to Jerusalem, some of the stones laid as the foundation on the top of that mountain are still there. It was an incredible construction. More glory days come, but... Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, before Israel even had a king, God said that when a king comes to the throne, he gave some instructions. He gave some warnings. Every king was to write out by hand a copy of the law for himself. There's a lot of wisdom in that. But God also warned some things like the king is not to marry a bunch of wives He's not to hoard a bunch of gold and silver. He's not to spend his time acquiring possessions and such. But we see in Solomon's life, he gets carried away by all of the prestige, by all of the prosperity that was going on. It became more than his heart could handle. And Solomon drifted from God. Friends, really, the cycle of the book of Judges repeats itself in Solomon's life. Solomon begins to drift. As he drifts, his drifting picks up steam. And do you remember when we looked at this, at the book of Judges, what came after the immense sin? What came next? It was always idolatry. Yes, even Solomon fell to idolatry. And here is, here is how it came about. Solomon acquired all of these possessions and gold, boatloads of gold, literally acquired all of these riches, all of these things. And he married many, many wives. In fact, it's embarrassing even to say 
Solomon married 700 wives and 300 concubines. The Lord had specifically forbidden this kind of thing, but he drifted into a hedonistic life and the slow fade of obsession with pleasures, riches, sex, possessions took over his life. And in his love for many women, let's just be honest, he indulged his every sexual desire. He wanted exotic women, and these exotic women worshiped the gods of their people. So when he would bring a new exotic woman home, he would build her a temple to her God to keep her happy. And eventually, that is a recipe for disaster. First Kings 11, it is described for us the heavenly perspective of what happened with Solomon. He was seduced into joining them. Friends, spiritual giants can indeed fall. Never base your faith on the faith of another leader. And friends, if spiritual giants can fall, then you better believe you and I can as well. It is not until you enter glory are you safe from the danger of shipwrecking your faith. Now, Solomon's life has a happy ending. We are glad about that. Solomon uh, turned from his sins. He repented of his sins. If you are new to studying the Bible, that word repent means to uh, be, be going one direction away from God and to turn from rebellion and to come back to him. God tells us that the way we're made right with him, the way that you receive eternal life is by turning from your sins. And yes, you have them turning from your rebellion, and yes, you are apart from Jesus Christ, and trusting in Him. Solomon turns. You can read about this in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon wrote several books of the Bible. He wrote two of the Psalms, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. He wrote, um, he wrote most of the works of Scripture early in life, fell away from the Lord, repented, and came back. And then he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, in which he recounts his journey. He says... I did it all. I tried it all. Every pleasure that you've ever gone through, I had the money to go to the nth degree of it. All of the riches, all of the houses, land, sex, you name it, I did it all. And he says it left him unfulfilled. And he saw what a waste. What a waste of your life it is to live for pleasure. Life has one great purpose. This is how he ends the book. Your life has the one great purpose to know and love and glorify the Lord because every soul is going to stand in judgment. Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam comes to the throne. If you're following our section so far, we're now at the fourth point where it's everybody else. Rehoboam comes to the throne. Now, God had told Solomon that because of his idolatry, there would be a split in the nation. And here is how it came about. Once again, it is mind-blowing, uncanny, the sovereignty of God. People are going to sin. There's going to be rebellion. And yet God is sovereign and orchestrating all of it. God brings about what he wants. The people of the nation come to Rehoboam's ceremony to speak to him. And they say to him, Rehoboam, your daddy was a hard king. Solomon did a lot of good, but he was aggressive. He pushed hard and they ask him to lighten up. Rehoboam says, give me three days. Let me talk to my advisors and I'll come back. He goes and he talks to the elders and they say, if you will humble yourself, if you will care for the people, then they will serve you. There will be peace and it will go well. He rejected their counsel, went to his young buddies and said, what do you think? His young buddy said, strike fear in their hearts. 
And so he comes back and he says, my dad was a pansy compared to me. My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Uh, strangely enough, it doesn't go well. The people rebel. They walk away. Rehoboam is made king with nobody following him. I mean, okay, Judah, his family, the tribe that he's from, okay, they follow him, but that sort of makes sense. And the Benjaminites, they lived in the same region. So those two tribes out of the 12, they follow him, but 10 of the tribes, they leave. Rehoboam tries to force the people to obey him. He sends some people to them. The people kill the staff that he sends. At the same time, here's what God did. God raised up another man to become king over the 10 tribes who would not submit to Rehoboam. In 1 Kings chapter 11, if, you, if you'll turn there for a second. 1 Kings 11. These are God's words to a man named Jeroboam. This man, Ahijah, that you're going to hear, he was a prophet who came to speak to Jeroboam. This is before he ever even became king. Verse 30, 1 Kings eleven thirty. 30. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. He said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you 10 tribes. But he will have one tribe. For the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I've chosen from all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, uh, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and observing my statutes and my ordinances as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even 10 tribes. But to his son, I will give one tribe that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. He goes on to say, if you will obey me, Jeroboam, then I will establish you a throne. But Jeroboam was not a righteous man. When he got the chance to rule, here's what he did. He saw that his, his people now would travel down to Jerusalem in the south, in, Ju in Judah, and they would go to the temple to worship. He thought to himself, if they keep doing that, they'll eventually come to submit to that king. And so what he did, he set up two, two cities of worship in the north, and he set up two golden images as their gods. Do you know what he named those gods? He named them Yahweh. There's a pretty big point there, friends. Just because you call your God by the biblical name does not guarantee that you are worshiping the one true and living God. There are a great many Americans claiming to follow Jesus. The Jesus in their minds is nothing like the Jesus of the scriptures. He is an image they have created in their own minds after their own liking. The nation of Israel has now just been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is often called Israel or Samaria as you're reading through these sections in the prophets. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And here's how the rest of these sections of history go. You follow the storylines of both of the people, both kingdoms, and both lines of kings. We began the book of 1 Samuel. We began the book of 1 Kings with a flourishing kingdom. Now they are divided. And now we are going to see 
eventual decline. This is not how it is supposed to be. This is not the kingdom that has been promised in the prophecies. There is another kingdom to come. Joab sits on the throne for a season of time. He is wicked. His son comes to the throne and is wicked. God arranges. Yes, God is sovereign over all of these things. A man named Baasha comes and he murders Nadab and comes to the throne. If you notice, something different has happened here. In Judah, God promised that this line of David would remain on the throne. And so throughout their history, it's one family line, one dynasty. But in the north, there is an unending change as one king will come and murder the former king and there's backstabbing and deceptions and plots and twists, there will be unending turmoil because of their unending idolatry. And then starting in about 1 Kings 12, this is the pattern of how the rest of the history is given. You will be told about a king and then you are told God's evaluation of the king. Let me show you an example. Uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 15 for a second. 1 Kings 15, read the first five verses with me. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. He walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father, David. But for David's sake... The Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. With all these kings were shown God's evaluation of their life. Some of these kings were wildly popular on the earth Wildly successful, had all kinds of cultural flourishing and things, but they're burning in hell. And what in the world does it matter if you swam in pools of money while you lived here, if you spend eternity burning in the flames of a torment that never ends? All that matters is the Lord's evaluation of your life. Well, 1 Kings 15, look, jump down to verse 11 to see a different kind of evaluation. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 11, Asa, here's another king, did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David, his father. See, we're always looking back to this David. He also put away the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all the idols which his fathers had made. He also removed Maacah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. Asa cut down her horrid image and burned it at the book Brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all the days of his life. We see an evaluation there of Asa that is helpful to us and we see kind of a pattern develop. We're told, and we don't want to underemphasize this, he was wholly devoted to the Lord. Asa was a good king. But did you catch that part in there about the, the but? But there's something he did not follow through on. He did not remove the high places. 
The high places were um, a kind of a cultural thing that on the hilltops and mountaintops, the people would go and make altars up there and they would go up there and have religious festivals and sacrifices and feasts and things. Some of those high places were devoted to the false gods. That's clearly wicked and evil. But friends, some of the high places were devoted to the Lord and God was furious about them as well. Friends, we are once again shown this principle. You can't just go do whatever you want and call it worship. God has shown us how to worship. He gave them a place of worship. They went and made their own and did it in their own way. God wanted the kings to tear down those high places, burn them and make them illegal. Some of the kings did that, but most of them did not. But once again, we're we're shown this pattern here. It might sound significant to you that of all the things we could be told about this guy named Asa, why were we told that he didn't remove the high places? If you do a word search of this, you'll actually find this comes up over and over and over. It becomes a standard of just how devoted to the Lord are you? Just how devoted was this king? Some of the kings were just plain evil, but there are varying degrees of evil. Some of the kings were godly, And they walked in the ways of the Lord. But you know, Christian, there are varying degrees of obedience. Some of the kings walk with the Lord and tore down the high places like Hezekiah. But most of them did not. Friends, there's no shortage of people who will call themselves a Christian, who will take the name of Jesus and even attend church. There's a much, much fewer group who actually live a life that displays devotion to the Lord. But it is a very small group indeed who live so devoted to the Lord that they are willing to follow through on the hard commands. They're willing to go to war against the kinds of sins that maybe even the church culture is okay with. But it is these who go who bleed for the kingdom, who have a heart that yearns for obedience, who are willing to to strive to obey every command. These are the ones that the Lord takes great delight in. Your life is going to receive an evaluation just like these kings. Your life will be summed up based on how you have served the Lord. Solomon ended the book of Ecclesiastes with the statement, every act will be brought to judgment. Jesus said every careless word will be brought up. Every cup of cold water given in his name will be occasion for reward. The level of honor that you will receive on the day of judgment is directly based on the degree of your obedience to the Lord. God is not going to be impressed by the money you have made or the trophies your kids won at their ball games. Your honor and your reward is based on how you have obeyed the Lord. As you read through this section of Kings, this just comes up again and again, this heart-piercing call that your life will be summed up in a paragraph. Your life's evaluation will look like one of these kings. He did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Or maybe he was wholly devoted to the Lord his God. And he strived to obey. Well, as you go through the history 
not a single king from the northern kingdom will be godly. There are some who kind of come close. It's kind of confusing. You kind of get the whole mix of humanity. There's a guy named Jehu who's personally wicked, but for some reason makes decisions that honor God. Why? I don't know. It's inconsistent, but it happens in the world. In the southern kingdom, there are many wicked kings, but God does give the occasional righteous ruler, Asa and Jehoshaphat, Joash and Hezekiah, and then one of the highlighted kings of the book, Josiah. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about him as we come back next week. Josiah and his reforms that he brought about. But friends, as we look at this section, God is showing you an example. He's showing you the way that your life will be evaluated. And Solomon's voice calls to you from the book of Ecclesiastes to live your life in the light of eternity with your eye on the day that you will stand before God. Live your life so that you will fare well on that day. And so Christian, non-Christian, wherever you are this morning, I want to ask you this question. How will you fare on that last day? The great delusion of our culture is everybody saying, oh, I'll be fine. I'm a good guy. God says something very different. God says you are not. God says your sins, though you may think of them as light, God says your sins have created a separation between you and him. God says your sins have made you unclean. In fact, so unclean, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you have complete cleansing and forgiveness of sins. You are never going to do enough good deeds that you make up for your bad stuff. There is only one way that you will be made right with God so that you have entrance into the kingdom of heaven and then an opportunity of having reward when you're there. That one way is through what he has done in his son. Jesus has made a way for your sins to be forgiven, pardoned, cleansed, and you to be made right with God, right relationship and in covenant with him. Jesus says that whenever you turn from your sins, you got to admit that you got them in order to do that. You've got to admit that your heart has evil and that you are in rebellion for you to turn from that. If you turn from your rebellion with a heart that submits to Jesus Christ, trusting in him and cry out to be saved, God says that at that moment, in an instant, you are made right with God. And on that day, you have your access into eternal life. And then he calls you to live a life that shows you are devoted to him. And your obedience will display your faith and your obedience will be rewarded. If you live your life as so as to serve him, then he will say over your life in his evaluation, he, she, wholly devoted himself to the Lord your God. This is what you want to hear on the last day. Let me pray for us and we'll close. Oh Lord our God, Father, I pray that you will convict our hearts and help our hearts with whatever truth it is that we need to take away from today. Please, God, do not let us quickly forget. And Father, please transform us. We love you, Lord. We pray your blessing as we leave. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good day. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Glory and Decline. 
Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Thank you.